Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Hi, I'm Liam O'Mara, a candidate for Congress in CA42, and I'd like to talk about how we can save the middle class from the unfolding depression caused by this pandemic. Supporting current House and Senate proposals for a $2,000 per month stimulus has to be one of the easiest political decisions I've made since entering this race. I am, after all, one of just a handful of post-primary Democratic candidates running on a universal basic income. Too many in Washington have forgotten one of the fundamental lessons of the Great Depression, that cash in the hands of the workers is what drives the economy, not Wall Street. Back when they did understand it, in the immediate post-war decades, wage growth matched productivity gains and we created a middle-class lifestyle for most Americans. The 1940s, 50s, and 60s saw the longest sustained boom in the real economy in our nation's history, and we made the American dream real for countless millions. But since the 1970s, the Fordist principle, that money in the hands of the workers lets them buy your stuff, has been under assault. The new oligarchs do not care about the economy as a whole, only their own profits, and they have guided into place policies which have undermined the middle class. Pay has stagnated for 40 years and benefits are shrinking. The cost of housing, health care, and education have skyrocketed. And the tax burden has been shifted onto our shoulders so the rich can siphon ever more out of the real economy. This pandemic is only laying bare how precarious the situation is for countless American families. Many of us lack savings and have no way to weather a quick fall in income and the sharp decrease in our weekly spending has been crushing small businesses across the country. It is a perfect time to remind Americans that it is their spending which keeps the whole engine running, not the so-called job creators in the 1%. And the best way to restart the economy and get us back on track is to put cash directly into the hands of the people who will spend it. speaking with Liam O'Mara, who is running for Congress in CD42. CD42 is an area that's just north of San Diego County, includes Temecula, Lake Elsinore, and some other areas. Um, Liam is also a professor and has a PhD in history. Welcome, Liam. Hey. So right off the bat, I wanted to ask you about education. Since you're a professor, you have a PhD. Uh, you went to college a little bit later in life. You started out as a working class person. You were a fry cook. You were a longshoreman. So you saved up your money. You went to college, got your PhD, and you now teach. But I feel like even the ability to do that, that part of the American dream has evaporated. In the state of California, mm-hmm. we have systemically defunded both the Cal State system and the UC system. Right now, for example, the UC budget is uh, only 8% coming from the state of California. The rest is through donations, alumni, and other uh, charitable donations, which is ridiculous. They might as well be private institutions at this point. And on top of that, the tuitions have been increased so much that it's impossible for these kids to get a degree without taking student loans. So what are your plans in this area? You've seen it firsthand change from the time you were in college to now. What do you think we should do to fix it? It's, it was actually quite bad by the time I got in around 32. Um, and the, uh, 
The system has been bad for quite some time. We've been defunding systems and they've just not kept up with population growth. Per capita spending on this has right. fallen. And if we're moving into a 21st century technical economy, we need it to be increasing spending on this. This is one point I make about my district. I'm, I'm in a sprawling district in Southwest Riverside County and we have not one single university. That's None. crazy. We have one community college and it's pretty small and we have a satellite campus for another community college. That's it. So we cannot produce the high-tech workers that we need to attract any good industries in the area. And the costs are just insane. Um, I did, um, I, I worked quite a few different fields. The last things I was doing um, before getting into college, I was in IT for a little while. Um, well, actually, more than a little while, but <laughs> I spent a few years there and um, ended up getting out in the, the 90s right as the dot-com bubble was, was bursting at okay. the end of the 90s. And uh, that's how I said, well, you know, uh, here I'm 99, there's a glut of tech workers out there. I'm going to see what the college situation's like there. And I had managed to save up a little bit to start. And, and I still, to finish a PhD, there's, there's a couple hundred grand in debt just from the, the college. Wow, it's, really? It's just, yeah, you're, you're carrying a mortgage. What year I mean, did given you that I graduate? Also at the time, um, I, I graduated with the BA in, let's see, it was from uh, 2000. Three, I guess. Oh yeah. Okay. And um, and then let's see, no, ten into six. Okay, so no, it was uh, oh three was six. You can count your dissertation years. Yeah. <laughs> well, the dissertation gets funky because um, not just the coursework because you still have I to had, pay tuition when you file your dissertation, right? Yeah. No, I had to take a leave of absence for a while because mm -hmm. um, the funding had collapsed in uh, 2008 because of the recession there for a lot of projects, right. and I I could not I I couldn't afford to continue to self fund my uh, research trips, so I had to abandon my dissertation topic and start over again. Oh. So I took a, a leave of absence, came up with another project that I could actually do from, from, from what I had already here. And, um, and then because of the leave, I, I, I didn't actually finish it till uh, 2017. Mm. So only three years ago now. Okay. But the, it was, the grad school was 11 years. So yeah, it was from 2006 to 2016. So I guess the, it was 03 to 06 was, I guess, the college years then. Hmm. Yeah, so, okay. So you, way, you started after me then. Insane. The costs are just insane, yeah. and uh, it, and and again, if you're coming from a family that couldn't afford this to begin with, uh, and you end up taking on tons of debt for it, then you graduate with a mortgage-sized debt around your neck that keeps you from buying a house, it That's keeps right. you from buying cars or doing anything, which actually is a drag on the entire economy. One of the things that bothers me about a lot of the messaging around student loan debt forgiveness and tuition-free public colleges is that. We allow the right to message this as, well, oh, why should we help them out? Why should we help these middle-class kids who went to college? I didn't get to go to college. And I'm like, okay, well, but this actually does help you. Because yeah. if you if you forgive that debt, there's a massive immediate stimulus to the real economy. That's because right. all those people who aren't spending hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars per month in their salary in debt payments are now able to spend that in your stores and adding on to the houses and anything else, buying a new car. So it helps everybody. So yeah, I'm in policy wise, I'm for student debt forgiveness and for tuition free public universities, colleges and trade schools, because not everyone is going to go to college, not everyone needs to go to college. Right. I agree with that. So Pat Brown's master plan, which is how our university system was created here in California, his master plan allowed for that, right? So you had the UC system that was to cater to give PhDs, right? So these are the scientists, the researchers, 
advanced degree work, the Cal State schools had a mandate to educate the, the kids that were closest to the campus. And even now to this day, the way they admit students is you can have a lower GPA and be closer to the campus and still get in, right? Because their mandate is um, a geographical one. Yes. And then you have the community colleges and the tech schools. And I think people need to realize all of these things were practically tuition free. So that this this idea of tuition free public university isn't a new one. It's something that we had and it's something that we gave up. So I um I graduated before you. I didn't realize you were much that much younger than me. I feel so old now, but <laughs> When I was a freshman well, um, at UC Irvine, my uh, my tuition was, believe it or not, $400 a quarter, just to give people an idea. By the time I graduated with my undergrad degree, I was paying $2,700 a quarter. That's how rapidly it increased and we defunded the system. And then I went into my master's program. But yeah, it's it's now it's like you can't even, I was on our alumni board the last couple of years and I saw firsthand how these kids can't make ends meet. We have a food bank on campus at UC Irvine now because of the few, food insecurity. It's insane. I'm not even kidding. I'll, I'll see students at the, the private universities paying 30 or 40 grand a year. It's just obscene. Like this is an entire person's salary being yeah. dumped into just going to college. I mean, Chapman's a great school, but it's very expensive. The yeah. USC is very expensive. I mean, I, I actually had to look at the, uh, uh, the, the private schools because um, for the, my undergrad, at least, I, I did my, uh, my graduate work at UCI. Um, oh. So UC's there. You're but an anteater I, too? I am an anteater. <laughs> wait, wait. Give me, <laughs> right give me a zot, man. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I had to go to a, a private school for my undergrad, which actually really hurt the, the student loan, loan debt total there because um, I didn't have the, uh, in, my high school didn't prepare me for the math requirement for the UC system. Um, I never expected to go to college, so I didn't take, you know, the whole algebra two, statistics, all that kind of uh -huh. stuff there. So if they're like, okay, so yeah, yeah, your math skills, you're, you're going to take like, you know, five or six semesters worth of junior college just to go. It's like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. And, but they are obscenely expensive. But, you know, even there, I mean, thinking in terms of public schools, if you were to cut the cost back in the, the public universities to where they used to be, it would cause a downward pressure on all of them because a lot of the costs right now in schooling across the board, it's wasted money. It's tons of additional administration. It's tons of like superficial stuff. We're not spending the money where we need to be spending the money on the faculty and the students. You know, and yeah. Well, you know, that's that's a good point, because a lot of the um, overhead is going into administration salaries, not teacher salaries. And Another thing that disturbs me is the number of adjunct professors these university, universities are now hiring as opposed to full-time professors because they get away with paying them a lot less and there's not a, none of the ancillary costs as far as health insurance, et cetera. So it's definitely a problem. It needs to be reformed. More and than 70% of classes in the country are taught by part-timers <sighs> and part-timers generally do not get the benefits. And no. unless you have... More, different incomes. I mean, I have to teach on three campuses because I don't have a second income, you know? So some people, if, if you're at least married or something, maybe you can afford to live on 15 or $20,000 a year. Most people really can't. No, so you can't. You're stuck then being a freeway flyer, contributing to all that traffic. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's not a, it's not good for the students either. Because no, not. having that many of the academics not tied to the campus, not available all the time on the campus. Including right. You know, I can't keep track of the schedules because they're all different. 
I mean, my only ever holiday across the year is the Christmas break, you know, between Christmas and New Year's. Everything else, no, nothing ever overlaps. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. can't keep track of what's where and what's going on in any given place. So it, it's hard, a lot harder for students to engage with a lot of us. You know, Liam, you're right. My my niece is now getting her undergrad degree and she has a problem sometimes getting getting to talk to her professors because they don't have the same office hours. When I was at UC Irvine, almost all the staff was either tenured or full-time professors. So they would have multiple office hours a week. So when you were struggling with something, you could go and see the professor in his office, right? That wasn't this crazy thing. And it, that sort of learning is really important, especially if you're working with um, difficult classes like logic or statistics, statistics or some of these other things, you're probably going to need help outside of uh, the lecture hall in the lab, right? That's, it's really an important part of learning. So and part of having too many adjunct professors is that. They just, they just assume that we're going to be able to be available all the time through our phones Email or something. Or something. They, yeah, no. That that's somehow good enough, that that meets it's the not. same objectives. And it's, it's really not. No. no. Uh, Plus, you're not getting paid hard. for it. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And it's, it's hard even to keep a, a space for it. I mean, the, the campuses usually have uh, shared offices or a shared space that's usually out in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. in order to, to do that. And it's hard even to keep that when there's a shortage of space. One of my three campuses right now, there's a current shortage of office space. I've not had an actual office in a year, not even a shared office. I literally have no place to go. If students want to meet with me, I have to ask to borrow another faculty member's office or we have to meet in, uh, in, in the coffee house or something. That's insane. Um, so one of the things that I think about is how, how we can refund the system, how we can refinance the system, so to speak. Because it's, it's, and part of the reason we have to really consider is the reason it's been cut so much is if you look at the California state budget, and it's a requirement that states have a balanced budget. They cannot run a deficit. That's just the way it is, right? Only the federal government can do that. So for this reason, when they get to areas, times where it's tough or times where they need to cut things, it's the Cal State UC budgets that generally have been cut first because it's the it's the largest line item on the discretionary side of spending, right? And part of that problem is we've moved so many things to the mandatory side through propositions through the state, through our direct democracy, right? right. So things that we've, as, as Californians, we've said, we don't want this stuff to be cut. So they've been moved over from discretionary to mandatory, but the UC budget, the Cal State budgets, that's not, that has not happened. It's still over here. So one of the things I proposed um, when I was on the alumni board is that we looked at changing that. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily think from a theoretical perspective that having all of these things on the mandatory side of spending is a good idea. It ties up our ability to move money when we need to. But at the same time, we are stuck playing defense all the time and they keep cutting the budget. If you're down to 8% for public university, that's a serious problem. And it tells me right now that education isn't a priority in the state and it should be. It's good for the state because it's good for the economy. It's good for for uh, getting people more educated for better jobs, less crime. There's so many benefits to this. So um, what are your we thoughts from, on that? We went from being up at the top of the country in education to near the bottom. We are generally scraping the bottom. The, the as last far as funding, period. right? In, well, in terms of outcomes as well. I mean, because funding has been cut so much. I mean, our educational standards are falling dramatically. And this is, this is a serious problem for the, the largest economy in the country. And if you're thinking in terms of what should be mandatory, what should be a priority, you're investing in your future, right? If we stop, if we, if we cut too much out of the education spending, 
where are we going to go right. as, a state and as a society? So Liam, you're talking about the general education budget right now, not necessarily the UC, just to clarify, it sounds well, like. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, in terms of education <laughs> as a whole. Because still, uh, some of the UC campuses are still considered public Ivy League. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I mean, and I mean, uh, Berkeley and UCLA are fantastic campuses and do pretty darn well. Yeah. But our education spending yeah. as a whole and and they are related issues because uh, especially you mentioned the um, entrance requirements to things mm-hmm. or the, what they were the different purposes. Right. Yeah. I, teach, I teach at universities and at uh, community colleges. I teach at one community college, two universities of the two universities. One's private, one's public. The public one I teach in is in a relatively impoverished area. And you get people coming out of the local schools who are not even close to prepared for college and it's, right. it's not their fault. It's nothing wrong with them. They just don't have the skill set because they've been taught only to a standardized test. Right. Some other things have been trimmed out of it that they really, they have no ability to do the sort of critical thinking and research that you need in college. So we need to really th- rethink the entire approach. Spending absolutely needs to be considered a social priority, and it's sad yeah. that it's not. So that's one issue you can do in terms of, of California. I'll give you a federal one, though, since I am running for a federal office. Um, we keep cutting funding out of the Department of Education that could be going to the different states to supplement this spending, to help mm-hmm. out across the board there. And what we've been doing is massively increasing the amount of money that's available for student loans. That is a scam. Yeah. It's a scam to, a, to push people farther into debt where college used to be a pathway into the middle, a middle class life, right? You would go to college, you'd pick up uh, a, a particular degree or certificate that would give you a certain skill set and help you to get a certain, certain job, your pay levels, your lifetime pay earnings do go up for, for college grads there. And that was the way there. But if you graduate with 50, 100, 200,000 in debt, right. you're not doing that. And what we're doing is, if all that money that's being made available for those student loans that's in those programs there, if that was money instead being used directly to fund public education, I mean, the money is still there. It still is being made available. It's just being made available in a way that transparently benefits the bankers and not society as a whole. That's right. That is the disease of neoliberalism right there. They could be taking that money and directly funding the system and lowering the tuition costs, but instead they're enriching a bunch of middlemen banksters because they've privatized it and they've allowed for these guys to come in and profiteer off of the of the government spending and education instead. Our student loan system has essentially been a privatization of public education in the United States, and it's been done in a a stealth way that that people aren't even picking up. Right. Um, I was actually happy that so many people were picking up on just some of the awful things that uh, Betsy DeVos has been trying to push through, and at least it gets some coverage there. But this has been a process that goes back into Reagan. Yeah. And it really relates to um, the Republican approach of uh, regulatory capture, putting people into the departments that are intending to destroy them. Mm-hmm. They run them into the ground. They mismanage them. They introduce administrative changes, most of which are never noticed by the public, but have a long-term systemic effect on, on the services that are being provided to us. And we're dealing now with decades of slow destruction in a lot of these areas. No, absolutely. And it's not just the Republicans. It's both parties. Every president yep. or and even mm-hmm. half of our governors have engaged in some form of this. It's oh, sort of they yeah. adopted this idea that the market is the moral arbiter 
and therefore let the market do whatever it wants. And it's been very devastating for uh, yeah, the, the working system class. Is the real problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, between the two parties, clearly the Democrats are less destructive in this, but it's more a matter of like, it's it's that whole lesser of two evils sort of calculus. You know, the one at least is going to manage things a little bit more effectively, put more experts in charge of things, but they're not actually going to fix things. One yeah. of the ways I like putting, putting it out to people is that you put the Republicans in charge in things and we begin declining in the real economy. Our lifestyles keep, our living standards keep going down. Everything gets worse. We elect the Democrats for a while and it plateaus. It doesn't improve. It doesn't improve. And in some instances, it, it has gotten worse. I'd say in Bill some, Clinton was as devastating as Ronald Reagan was in many areas. He was an heir too. I mean, uh, I wouldn't say as devastating, but he was definitely a Reagan heir. Um, and definitely, um, I mean, he, he was, he's a self-described uh, Eisenhower Republican. I mean, there's, and there's a lot of ways in which his ab- approach was deeply conservative. His uh, welfare reform was horrific. His, the, the criminal justice bill was horrifying. There's a lot of damage that uh, Bill Clinton did. Uh, but yeah. but it, it's like it's in some areas more so than others. So yeah, uh, I'm specifically thinking of the DLC about the fact that he adapted privatization in the same way that Reagan did and, and right. Bush, for that matter. I mean, NAFTA wasn't a Democratic bill, but it was Bill Clinton that passed it. I think that's, you know, one but Absolutely, one example. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the corporate structure of those trade agreements is a problem. Uh, one of the things that I like to engage in here in discussions, at least, is that the trade itself is not the problem. It's, um, it's trade in the absence of any kind of real investment in society. So you invest in the jobs that are left, the things are still competitive. There's a reason that, I mean, Germany has an economy one-sixth the size of the U.S., and they literally export more than we do because yeah. they emphasize <laughs> things that they're still good at and can compete in, and they kick all of our butts at it. We don't do that. We cut our investment in tons of social areas, including education, and still expect to compete somehow. And then it's the, the you, get, you mentioned neoliberalism earlier, it's the, the corporate structure of the trade agreements that basically steal elements of our democracy. No, 100%. Oh, you wanted to take care of your environment? I'm sorry, that disadvantages this other country. So this unaccountable bureaucracy is going to say you can't do that anymore. Like, what? Yeah. You know, they also have immunity. You know, corporations were given an immunity through NAFTA. So and then they can also go after a state and sue them if they lose money, which is absolutely insane. It's so egregious. And really, it gets back to a significant problem of corporate governance that um, that I've often been arguing against. I mean, corporations were a dangerous idea from the beginning. And there's a reason that there was a lot of criticism of them from the beginning in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. But the amount of power they accumulated across the 19th and 20th is just absurd. Uh, Corporations have a charter with a state that says you're supposed to actually advantage the community. You're being offered this, this particular kind of qualified immunity here from so that uh, individuals, individual investors or, or people can't be sued where that, right? So there's a, a compromise, there's a, a sort of corporate personhood that's always been there. I mean, we've made it much worse. Yeah, we've made it, it worse. Was there, yeah. It was there from the beginning of the model as it was mm-hmm. proposed because it helped to shield investors. They could pool their resources and they could invest in something a bit more risky. In exchange for that immunity, they were supposed to benefit the community they were in. Now, they don't. They, they can just say, you know, oh, you don't like us? Uh, we're going to like open up a post office box in Bermuda and say that's our real address and stop paying taxes. <laughs> Exactly. And my idea here is, you know, honestly, and um, uh, I'll uh, apologize to your listeners, I'm, I am of a working class background, but it's hard to say some of these things. Otherwise, I think we really need to stop fucking around with this stuff. I think yeah. we really yeah. need to address corporate um, governance. I think that if a business wants to make money in the United States, 
if they want to do business here and access our consumer markets, then they pay taxes here and yeah. they continue to serve the public interest. And if they don't, those charters should be revoked. And those trade agreements were done in a way to prevent that. And because of the way treaties become law of the land, it actually has constrained our government. So we need to revise a lot of that work in order to get back to actually fixing the corporations issue, because otherwise they have an easy way to leach money out of these countries, stow it in the Caymans and never do anything for us. Oh, yeah, they've done nothing but extract wealth for decades now. Um, I wanted to ask you about something. You have a very comprehensive campaign site, which is great if you're like a nerd like me. So I got deep into some of the, the longer pieces that you had on there. Um, one of the things that you mentioned that rarely gets discussed, I want to talk about with you, is the uh, the fact that our economy is driven by consumption. You list a 70% consumption rate, that 70% of our economy is generated through um, consumption. I've seen it as high as 75%. So I, let's give or take 70, 75%. That is that is problematic when consumption drives up, like as we are seeing happening right now, right? Mm-hmm. The entire point of them restarting and reopening these economies is because the consumption's driven up, it's about to collapse. But there's another alternative here. The other alternative is instead of forcing people back into work where it's not safe or they could get sick, we could insti- we could institute an emergency UBI and put cash in the hands of every American which would allow them to consent. It would save capitalism away because they would be still consuming. Right. But they're not doing that because the greedy oligarchs cannot see what's right in front of them. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're hitting on quite a few different issues. I know, sorry. <laughs> what, no, no, it's, it's fine because um, there, there's many of these issues are pretty near and dear to my heart. And I teach a lot of, uh, of economic history. And one of the problems is that in the last few decades, we've been moving away from a lot of the lessons that we had of things like the Great Depression. And what we were seeing back then is that across the 1920s, the United States was the first country to to fully transition to a consumer basis for the economy Mm -hmm. and away from the sort of like massive capital expenditures that drove a lot of growth. This is one of the reasons that you still today see much higher growth rates in the developing world because they still have a strong capital goods basis in the economy. They're still building trains and airports and ports and you know factories and building all the stuff up we have all that we're we're essentially a post-industrial economy at this point we're driven mainly by someone's desire to go out and buy the latest iphone right if we aren't buying new toys everything shuts down that was already in place in the 1920s and one of the things that made the depression as bad as it was is that people did not get that and we could not address it. Across the 1920s, productivity shot way up and worker pay barely budged. Yeah. After World War II, we saw several decades in which productivity and salaries climbed together. And that is what created this middle-class life. So when a lot of people are saying, make America great again, okay, I'm like, okay, cool. So you mean like high taxes on the rich and yeah. then <laughs> more incentives for high pay for everybody else and not more right. of this like, you know, Reaganite, you know, stagnant wages. Our, our salaries have not gone up since the 1970s. No, they haven't. If you adjust for inflation, a lot of careers have actually gone down in yeah. what they're paying. And most of us are making the same thing we would have made in the 1970s. That's like my whole life. Our pay has not gone up. And because of that, consumer debt has shot through the roof because the cost of living keeps going up, healthcare is up, housing up. So we have to fall farther and farther into debt. It, the whole thing is completely unsustainable. Yeah, You can't is. run an, a, an entire country on the basis of consumer debt. 
I mean, but some it's of the too fragile here, they think you can, and that's kind of deliberate. We're essentially creating a kind of neo-feudalism where we're going to become peons, you know, tied to the land, so to speak, mm -hmm. through our consumer debt and dependent upon the banks because it's the only way we can maintain anything like a decent quality of living. And even there, it's a lot of like forest for the tree stuff. We went from first in the world in living standards to 17th and falling because we're not investing in people at all. We have to completely change this model. I'm glad you mentioned the, the emergency UBI as a solution there. That was one of the easiest decisions I made immediately signing on. Like as soon as people like Rokan were saying that, I was like, yeah, yeah, hello. We need to make certain that everybody in our country uh, who needs to go to a doctor can get the health care they need regardless of their income. This is kind of a no-brainer, something that it should have happened in our country many, many years ago. But in the midst of this crisis, what I believe we must do is empower Medicare to cover all medical bills during this emergency. Now, this is not Medicare for all. We can't pass that right now. But what this does say is that if you're uninsured, if you are underinsured, if you have high deductibles, if you have high co-payments, uh, if you have out-of-pocket expenses, Medicare will cover those expenses so that everybody, regardless of their health care needs, and I'm not just talking about the coronavirus, but their health care needs in the midst of this crisis will get all the health care that they need. That is what we should be doing uh, in this moment of crisis. We need to provide a direct emergency $2,000 cash payment to every household in America every month for the duration of the crisis to provide them with the assistance they need to pay their bills and take care of their families. Uh, we must place an immediate moratorium on evictions, on foreclosures, and utility shutoffs and suspend payment on mortgage loans for primary residences and utility bills. In other words, it would be unacceptable uh, that people uh, could lose their homes, lose their apartments, uh, see electricity or gas shutoffs during this crisis. So there must be a moratorium on all of those uh, in those areas. Uh, furthermore, we must restore utility services to any customers who have had the utilities shut off. Unbelievably, in America right now, you got a whole lot of folks literally do not have running water in their homes because they haven't been able to pay their water bill, they may not have electricity, and that has got to be dealt with right now. We need to prevent price gouging by pharmaceutical companies. As soon as a coronavirus vaccine is developed, it must be sold for free. This is not an opportunity for some drug companies to make a fortune by charging an outrageous price for the medicine that people need in order to stay alive. Further, all prescription drugs that are developed with taxpayer dollars must be sold at a reasonable price. The pharmaceutical industry must be told in no uncertain terms that the medicines that they manufacture for this crisis will be sold at cost. This is not the time for profiteering or price gouging. Because I'm actually for a UBI in general. Yeah. I mean, given that we're continuing to lose jobs to automation and that's not going to change. And given that artificial intelligence is gonna take on whole classes of other jobs, about 47% of current American jobs are going to disappear in the next couple of decades.
And a lot of those will not be able to be replaced, especially since we're not investing in education and not finding new careers for a lot of people. So what are we going to do? Now you've got spiraling numbers of people that will never get their jobs back. This pandemic unemployment, um, it's already being estimated and not like from some airy-fairy left-wing stuff, like right-wing economists are saying about 42% of the jobs lost here are probably not going to come back at all. They're permanently gone. Mm-hmm. So now we end up with a like permanently high unemployment. If we end up with a permanently high, like 10% unemployment rate, and then automation starts pushing that up year after year after year, it's unsustainable. Yeah. We absolutely have to find a solution there because it's not just taking care of the people, which honestly, it should be a moral issue anyway, but whatever. It's not just that because we have this Fordist economy that's based around consumption, we have to have people spending. It honestly, infuriates me that we we on the democratic side will let republicans get away with messaging things like social security and welfare as like uh entitlements or kind of like charity why is society just giving money to people well we give them money because you want retired people to keep spending money if they can't spend money it hurts all of us or just not live in abject poverty for pete's sake yeah i mean hello i mean Extreme poverty is as high in the U.S. as it is in Albania and Russia and oh, the absolutely. U.S. Bank. And it's entirely it manufactured. Yeah, it's a policy choice. Policy We're deliberately choice. allowing it. And senior poverty is increasing. Yeah. Childhood poverty is increasing. The more that builds up, the less money there is actually to be spent that holds everything down. That's lowering our overall growth rates. So you want to talk about how we can help small businesses? I, I hate that Republicans get to message to small businesses better because our approaches are so much better. Right. I want to put money in the hands of the workers. They will spend money in your shop. You will make more money. You know, yeah. It's a win-win for everybody. The current system is dragging the entire country down. It's unsustainable. It's untenable. Look, I mean, if I'm looking in my mind, um, I'm a post-capitalist. I think capitalism is done. But if you're not that person and you want to save capitalism, the only way you're going to do it is by putting cash into the hands of your average Americans. Over 80% of the new wealth created the last couple of years has gone to the 1%. This isn't. So as Jeff Bezos is becoming a trillionaire, at the same time, we have senior citizens who, who are on Social Security that are having their Social Security checks garnished by the government because of student loan debt that their kids defaulted on that they signed on to. This is insane, but this is where we're at right now, and it's just completely untenable. Have you, um, on that note, I'm going to go off track here a little bit because I'm curious. Um, have you studied Karl Marx at all in your, in your uh, history of teaching or uh, as a student, I should say? Is um okay, so technically speaking, my discipline is the history of ideas. Uh, I'm what's called an intellectual historian. So I study the history of ideas and how they're transmitted and developed and spread from place to place. So that's close to philosophy. Uh, which means that I study philosophy, psychology, <laughs> science, economics, you know, uh, I, uh, all kinds of stuff. Um, and then look at how they all interrelate. I happen to focus in a lot of my teaching on uh, the Middle East, Europe, and some world history classes, but my research is all intellectual and cultural history. Okay. Um, I have entire bookcases uh, of economic history. Um, and yeah, I've, I've read the anarchists. I've read the Marxists. I've also read tons, tons of the far right econo- economists. I've read, I mean, so I can, I can quote Marx. I can also quote Friedrich von Hayek, you know, um, <laughs> and, 
and you kind of you kind of need to in order to do what I'm doing Wait, professionally. Can, can we talk about Hayek for a second? Can we have that conversation? Uh, only because I feel like a lot of people don't know who he is and they need to know who this guy. This guy sure. is the founder of neoist ideology. And when I say neoist, I I say neoist because neoliberalism, neoconservative conservatism is sort of based on Hayek's principles. And, and so even though they're on both sides here, they're really one and the same when it comes to this sort of thing. And his main idea is that the markets are the moral arbiter, right? We should turn everything over to the market because it's the moral arbiter. So the yeah. privatization, all of these things that we see that have infiltrated our modern um, political systems are sort of born from his ideology. And I don't know why he doesn't get discussed more. Yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's fascinating to me the the kind of hybridity in our approach to things because you can see a direct influence of like the Chicago school, Milton Friedman and whatnot from yeah. the 1970s on beginning to influence the Nixon administration and then driving a lot of what happens with Reagan there. But in the background is a lot of the Austrians. Yeah. And we have like, you know, uh, Hayek, Mises, whatever. Um, also Mises, in- there's another one. He's even worse. Approach. Like their, their thinking is being influenced heavily by the Austrians, while right. a lot of the policies initially were influenced by the Chicago school. And, you know, it's a bad marriage, that, Liam. It, I, it I agree is. with you. It's a genuinely horrifying marriage for what we have been doing as a society. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, the two of those together have really caused some destruction. And then uh, throw on Ayn Rand on that. Yeah, <laughs> right. That. And yes, what is self-sacrifice? You say that you do not like the altruism by which we live. You, you like a certain kind of Ayn Randist selfishness. I uh, would say that I don't like is too weak a word. I consider it evil. And uh, self-sacrifice is the precept that man needs to serve others in order to justify his existence, that his moral duty is to serve others. That is what most people believe today. Well, yes, we're taught to feel concerned for our fellow man, to feel responsible for his welfare, to feel that we are, as religious people uh, might put it, children under God and responsible one for the other. Now, why do you rebel? What's wrong with this philosophy? But that is what, uh, in fact, makes man a sacrificial animal, that man must work for others, concern himself with others, or be responsible for them. That is the role of a sacrificial object. I say that man is entitled to his own happiness and that he must achieve it himself, but that he cannot demand that others give up their lives to make him happy. And nor should he wish to sacrifice himself for the happiness of others. I hold that man should have self-esteem. And cannot man have self-esteem if he loves his fellow man? What's wrong with loving your fellow man? Christ, every important moral leader in man's history, has taught us that we should love one another. Why, then, is this kind of love, in your mind, immoral? It is immoral if it is a love placed above oneself. It is more, more than immoral, it's impossible. Because when you are asked to love everybody indiscriminately, that is, to love people without any standard, to love them regardless of the fact of whether they have any value or virtue, you are asked to love nobody. But in a sense, in your book, you talk about love as if it were a business deal of some kind. Isn't the essence of love that it is above, uh, above self-interest? Uh, well, let me m- make it concrete for you. What would it mean to have love above self-interest? It would mean, for instance, that a husband would tell his wife, if he were moral, according to the conventional morality, 
that I am marrying you just for your own sake. I have no personal interest in it, but I am so unselfish that I am marrying you only for your own good. Well, should what? husbands and wives Would tally up? Would any woman up? like that? Should husbands and wives I'm tally up at the end of the day and say, well, now, wait a minute. I love her if she's done enough for me today, or she loves me if, if I have properly performed oh, my functions. Is no, it? you misunderstood me. That is not uh, how love should be treated. I agree with you that it should be treated like a business deal, but every business has to have its own terms and its own kind of currency. And in love, the currency is virtue. You love people not for what you do to, for them or what they do for you. You love them for the values the virtues which they have achieved in their own character. You don't love causelessly. You don't love everybody indiscriminately. You love only and then, those who deserve it. And then if a man is weak or a woman is weak, then she is beyond, he is beyond love? He certainly does not deserve it. He certainly is beyond. He can always correct it. Man has free will. If a man wants love, he should correct his weaknesses or his flaws, and he may deserve it but he cannot expect the unearned, neither in love nor in money, but you neither have, in matter nor spirit. You have lived in our world and you realize, recognize the fallibility of human beings. There are very few of us then in this world, by your standards, who are worthy of love. Uh, unfortunately, yes. Very. And, and her influence, like, you know, locking a bunch of 14-year-old boys in so they never bother to grow up. I mean, right. it's just insane the number of people we have in Congress right now that are saying, like, oh, you should totally read Atlas Shrugged. I'm like, I read Atlas Shrugged. At, I was like uh, 12 years old. Yeah, I, I read it, too. I mean, I, I, I think it's a great piece of literature. It's a shit piece of philosophy. Anybody that takes Anne Rand seriously as a philosopher needs their head examined, especially because yeah, yeah, it's her a, idea it's is philosophy. that uh, that is that altruism is evil. Like, are you kidding me? Who the hell says that with a straight face, especially if you're a Christian? I always love the Christians that say this stuff. And I'm like, do you have any idea what Anne Rand preaches? Because that makes zero sense. Yeah, I mean, it's it takes a lot of the the self-interest aspect that comes out of capitalist ideology and completely misunderstands it. And some of that stuff is, is fundamental. And this is where I have fun as an intellectual historian, because you'll see people on the right making use of Adam Smith and citing Smith. I'm like, okay, cool. Have you actually ever read Smith? <laughs> no, it's corporations. Um, and one of the things Adam Smith, Smith is not a right winger. He believed no. that that the worker had a right to their fair share of production. Like yes. none of these folks. And if you read his invisible hand, it's not what they make it out to be. I mean, not his, even close. It, not even it, close. It's a benevolent thing. Like, he thought that his most important contribution was his theory of moral sentiments. That's not right. The nations. And the theory of moral sentiments gives the sympathetic understanding where like, okay, I see that this person is suffering. They would do badly if I did this. Therefore, I won't do it. Right. The kind of factories we saw in the 19th and 20th century with people deliberately poisoning. Yeah. Save a little cash there would make no sense to Smith. That's at correct. All. That's correct. It's very much a figure of the Enlightenment, and we completely remove that context. But yes, okay. So getting back to your question about Marx, I love you, Liam. You you could you could be in my uh, in my lecture hall right now. I hundred percent agree with you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, so yeah, I've, I've read Marx, and honestly, one of the things that I think is is fascinating about our current situation is the degree to which we're kind of playing out a lot of the same arguments back and forth from a traditional left and right, a capitalist socialist model there. And realistically, neither of them address the situation that we're in. We are beginning a transition toward at least technic in technical terms, what could become a post-scarcity world. 
And ah, um, one, one of the things okay. I think that's fascinating, like when people look at say Star Trek and they say, oh yeah, it's totally communist. I'm like, no, it's not because there's no real means of production or labor involved. I mean, exactly. it's like, uh, you know, Earl Grey, hot. And it's created the cup out of nothing. Where's the labor in that? It basically frees people up to do what they want. Wait, hang on, Liam, if I push a button, that's labor. <laughs> yeah, but it's not, you don't have to do it to make money. hundred percent, right. There, yeah. No, I agree with you. I think it's, it's amazing is that um, economists of both the left and the right did discuss this. You can go back to John Stuart Mill in the middle of the 19th century or John Maynard Keynes in the middle yeah. of the 20th century, both of which thought that we were heading toward a leisure economy, that as yeah. productivity True. increased, that labor would decline as a significant issue. Instead, we're working more and we're being paid less. Right. Keynes thought we would be working 15-hour weeks by this point. I wish he was right because it would technically be possible and that, again, gets back to the whole logic of the UBI. If we actually taxed the, the profits from the automation in the first place, taxed the profits from that extra productivity, tax the robots that are replacing us, then that money can come directly to us and we don't have to work as long hours. But it's more profitable to turn us into mindless worker bees that are There's so Adam Smith about the ability to pay the rent and to pay your health care and to pay for college or anything else, you're so stressed out that you can't possibly pay attention to what's really happening or who's screwing you. You know, it's it's an attempt to neuter our politics. It's it deeply undemocratic. Mm-hmm. And we are actually directly undermining our Republican form of government year after year, and people are willingly voting for it. Correct. I mean, this is what Adam Smith uh, criticism of the division labor amounted to, right? That we become this worker bee with with no ability to really think for ourselves, and that that would yeah, ultimately which is be also bad. what Mark was talking about. The, the two he did. You know what? Let's go back and talk about that for a second. Yeah, I think so. It's interesting to me that in 2020, a lot of Karl Marx's prognosis of where capitalism would lead us is really coming to pass. Uh, when you say post scarcity, I might have to switch to that because I think. I think you're referring to the same thing that I mean by post-capitalist, right? At some point, we're going to have to come to terms as to where we're at with our economy. The two things that have been driving consumption are disappearing, and that's part of the problem, right? You brought up credit earlier. So before we had credit, credit was created to to allow the Americans to continue consuming, right? There, We had hit a wall as far as consumption was, was and the growth couldn't happen without more consumption. So well, they invented, because they invented credit. Credit was there, but it was always a small part of the utilization. Right. Now it's like, you know. I have a pair of great-grandparents. Credit existed at the time. Credit was there. You could go and you could get a, use layaway or get credit to buy your. Right, right, right. Whatever. But they literally still bought, they bought a house with cash. Well, you could still do that back then. but need to use credit for everything. Right. Credit took off only in the neoliberal period. It did. It went from something that was tangential to growth. But that's part of the that's part of the arc of what I'm talking about. Right. I'm talking about the long term arc here. The second thing is that came into play under neoliberalism is globalization. Right. So even if you couldn't get the bump out of the American consumer, you could still get it abroad. There were all of these other markets that needed to be exploited, not only just for labor, but also for consumption, both, right? And that's what's driven the growth of a lot of these multinational corporations. But both of those things, we're running out of runway. We're running out of runway. Where do we go next, right? You can't, we cannot tether any more debt to the American consumer. That's the the same as becoming true of of, uh, exports. So- where do we go from here? You have two options. We, the only way to save, really, in my opinion, 
capitalism is with a UBI, or we look at what you were calling a, a post-scarcity universe, and maybe that also includes UBI. You know, there's probably an argument to may, be made in, in behalf of that. So Milton Friedman disgusted like a, a negative tax thing that's sort of like a UBI. Do you think mm-hmm. he had it right, or are you more interested in another form of that? Because there's many ideas around this. Oh, no, I, I, I don't think that they had it right, but they, they make a good argument for it because yeah. they are, it's talking about um, the need for it and the need for consumption. And also, again, Friedman and Hayek both talked about the social safety net and its necess- the necessity. They both talked okay. about how we needed to end poverty, and you do that by directly investing in people. So it allows you to make right-wing arguments for these ideas anyway. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, the technocrats do that even now. Like a lot of the left is against UBI only because it's being embraced by the technocrats. But their, I mean, their form of UBI is maybe a little bit different from what I would accept because they're using it to eliminate food stamps and other social right. safety nets because they think it's more economically efficient. And also they end up maybe paying less money to the to the poor folks. But I think there's a case to be made for both. I mean, I, there's more than one way to approach this, I think. Right, definitely. And the way I would approach this is uh, I would not take away any part of the existing social safety net, but you would it would allow you to, especially as a UBI ramps up over time. And if people are, most people, if you give them a leg up, manage to stand on their own feet and really do well. You can yeah. thrive. Below a certain level, you just can't ever get ahead. You're just, you're just constantly treading water. And- Throwing more money to people allows them to stop treading water and start swimming. And eventually you may need, you may be able to reduce certain things here, but in the short term, especially what it would do is if you maintained that other, the other support in the existing social safety net there and added a UBI, you would completely eliminate poverty. And that's the goal for me, eliminate poverty. Now, economically, you can still make a right-wing argument for that because if you eliminate poverty, there are more people spending, there's more people able to work, more people are thriving, going to school, whatever here. It's, it helps everybody out. But the goal for me is to eliminate poverty. So, so yeah, I, I don't think that when you approach it, uh, and this also was one of my criticisms of uh, a lot of the Yang model was it was talking about immediately ending most social safety right. pro- net programs. And yeah, some people would end up slightly better off. It, it might add up marginally to be like $200 more a month, but an extra $200 a month doesn't end poverty. Right. An extra grand or two a month would end poverty. That's right. I agree with you. hundred percent agree with you. Um, Eisenhower, when we look back at that period of time, you brought him up earlier. So I want to talk about Eisenhower for a second. I think people need to realize that the highest marginal tax rate when Eisenhower was president was 90%. So mm-hmm. where, where we're at now, whether it was, I think they began the cuts, I would say, really heavily under Reagan and it just snowballed from there. But even under the first seven years of Reagan's administration, it was 50%, right? So all of that. Yeah, I mean, it slowly fell over time. I mean, Johnson cut them a bit. Um, and, but you can already see, and this is one of the things that, that bugs me about this because they'll make the stupid triple trickle down arguments that helps yeah, everybody. Blah, blah, blah. And the trickle I, down I, is not coming. It infuriates me that Republicans get away with claiming that they're cutting taxes. My incumbent gets to claim that he's cut taxes. He has literally increased taxes repeatedly for people in my district. The Trump tax cut raised right. our taxes right. in California, but yep. oh, we're cutting our taxes. But you can trace this. You can go back to the 50s and trace it all the way through now. Every time you cut taxes on the rich, it increases the tax burden on the middle of the working class. Absolutely. 
our costs have had to go up and you because people aren't thinking of it systemically it affects local taxes state taxes everything because the money has to come from somewhere the spending has to come from somewhere it's all necessary to do if you're not taking it from jeff bezos you're taking it from bob smith you're taking right. you, you have to get it from ordinary people that's right and it infuriates me that they get to run on cutting taxes when literally what I'm trying to do is I'm running to cut the taxes of the people in my district because I want the 1% to pay what they're supposed to. And realistically, it helps them too. We created tons of millionaires in the 50s and 60s because yeah. if they're contributing more there, first off, the high tax rates discourage companies from these massive compensation packages. You look around the rest of the developed world and the difference between the average worker and the CEO is 10 to 20 times. It's 400 times in the US because they know they don't have to pay taxes on it. They can just take in that extra cash, throw it the Caymans and be happy. That's right. You put the tax rates there, the companies don't spend that money on those compensation packages. They give a raise to the workers, right? It helps everybody else out. Lowering the taxes for the rich is a huge part of why our wages have been stagnant for 40 years. Right. Right. No, I 100% agree with you. Uh, it's, it's, people have to realize that it's a pie. It may be an expanding pie if it grows, but it's still a pie. So if 82% goes to the 1%, that, may, that's, that little bottom half is all we get to divide up amongst ourselves. So people need to yeah, realize that. Yeah, there's a that. subtle distinction there people often miss. Okay, so- yeah. Uh, you go back to Smith, right? And the criticism of uh, mercantile capitalism. So that the world's total wealth isn't a single pie and there's winners and losers taking the slices there because wealth can grow through trade. Right. Okay, we get that. But year by year, it's still a single pie. In the moment, it, it, it is always finite. It's just that in the abstract, it's infinite. And that's a, a subtle distinction, I think, that, that's missed for a lot of people. I, yeah, 100%. Um, so you said mercantile capitalism. I wouldn't call it that. I would call it mercantilism. I'm curious as to why you would call it that. So my my idea, let me explain my why I'm saying that. I don't think Adam Smith has anything to do with capitalism. I think he's an enlightenment writer, as you mentioned earlier. I think capitalism really, in and of itself, is a 19th century concept. And I think one of the big differences is that one of these things measures wealth in terms of labor and the other thing measures wealth in terms of gold. Would you agree or disagree with that? Um, it goes back to a fundamental definition because I would trace the development of capitalism to the late Middle Ages and primarily actually- All right, so development's not the same though, is it? I mean, I'm curious. There are, there are various forms. I totally want to go down this rabbit hole, by the way. That's, 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 that's <laughs> the, the key defining element of capitalism is that concentration of wealth in private hands and its investment to generate additional wealth. Okay, so I'll grant that. that. makes that capitalism. Mercantile capitalism or mercantilism is a form of capitalism because it concentrates wealth and it involves private investment to generate additional wealth. Um, it's not liberal capitalism. Liberal capitalism is a development starting from Adam Smith but developing across the 19th century. So, you know, laissez-faire, liberal capitalism or liberalism, whatever you want to call that there. They're all, but it's a, it's a radically different form of capitalism, but it builds on that same basic. Which is why I wouldn't call it capitalism though. Leadership. That's, you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, I, I get that. And there's okay. a, there's a reason to do it, but there's, but it also, you can see a consistent connection. It gets back to. Um, well, I th yeah, I think there's a there's connection a there. There's a of mind that a lot of people think of themselves as capitalists because they have a small business. That's not, it's not really capitalism. Capitalism right. involves 
concentrated wealth and investment from an investor class that doesn't actually produce. If you work in a small business, right. you're not a capitalist. A capitalist is someone who sits on their fat ass and does nothing but jump money into things to generate more money. And that's been there since the late Middle Ages. It's the defining I, right. That I don't disagree with you on at all. I just think that it's a really important component that Adam Smith measured wealth in terms of labor, right? I think that's a huge difference. And that's that's sort of where I disconnect. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and there's a lot. There, there's a lot of variations. There's actually a, 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 at least a half dozen major models of, yeah. of capitalism that have existed and continue to exist there, but they all have that single fundamental component about ownership, and that's where right. there's a difference because you didn't have used to have that concentrated private ownership of wealth no. and this, this no, investor think, class yeah. just sat around. I mean, it's a uh, it basically allows you to distinguish it from uh, earlier models where the wealth was generated solely through the land and labor on the land, right. land ownership. It was an ownership of something that generated additional revenues like a factory or, you know, infrastructure. No, that was just a completely different form of exploitation. <laughs> yeah, it is. But, but, but still a form of exploitation. And one of the reasons 100%, I like that yeah. is that what we've done is we've, we've shifted to a different model, but instead of having the sort of feudal overlordship with people owning the land and you toiling on it you have people who own most of society they own the mode of, pro mode of production yeah. Of yeah. Land, but they own the means of production yeah. and they have all the wealth which means they still control everything oh most it's even worse in some ways are essentially um it's always on the verge of neo-feudalism and yeah. where social interventions or state interventions can get in there to restrain it you're basically helping to prevent the full flowering of a neo-feudal model Right. So one of the things that Adam Smith talks about in his uh, book on moral sentiments is that the invisible hand, I mean, the way he describes a scenario is that a wealthy landowner isn't, isn't going to let anybody live without, like the scarcity doesn't exist because he'll take care of everybody. Like it's sort of this, again, we're back at that benevolent viewpoint of human nature, right? So this is very different than this invisible hand in the sky, like letting letting the market destroy everything, which is what sort of the right has kind of glommed onto. But it's got nothing to do with what Adam Smith was saying, right? Well, because again, his core conception of human nature is wrong, and that's actually. Do you think it's right or wrong? Let's have that discussion. I'm I, I do. It, it actually is. It's fundamentally wrong. And, and in a sense, so is Marxist, because Marxist is an 18th century view of, of human nature. They, they actually they're, they're misunderstanding how the brain basically works. So hang most, on. Let me wait. Hang on. Let me stop you there. Liam, let me stop you there. So do, would you say that the default position is that human beings are self-centered or altruistic? You're saying self-centered, self-serving agents. Neither. Okay, it's, what do you it, say? It, it's, it's, it's sort of a false dichotomy. One of, the, one of the key issues that you end up looking at with um, the enlightenment view of humanity is that humans are rational creatures yeah, and yeah. that we make uh, decisions based upon reason. Yeah. And we're not, we're primarily emotional <laughs> creatures. We're driven by instincts. And this is, this gets okay. back to, honestly, okay, I won't disagree with that. me again, as a, um, as a historian of ideas, you can trace back a change that starts really in the late classical period and primarily yeah. with the rise of Christianity and Islam with a fundamental um, separation of humanity from nature I mean, you can also take this back into a few smaller religions like Judaism and whatnot, where um, you were kind of like created as an overlord over nature and not really part of it. We are animals and we have we are heir to billions of years of instincts that have accumulated. I don't disagree with that. Where, are you a moral I mean, naturalist? Some of the I mean, some of these um, right wing loons like Jordan Peterson get it completely wrong because we're not like freaking <laughs> lobsters. That guy. Right? 
Yeah, there's a lot of reasons to detest. <laughs> but fundamentally, he's a terrible researcher. I mean, he, he is does terrible. Not, he bastardizes everything. He does not everything. understand the evolutionary psychology he's using. He's yeah. fundamentally perverting it. And he is. His use of his first book is trash because he just doesn't understand the myth that he's no. using. He's he's basically reinterpreting everything through this weird Jungian framework that he's or got. Like a there. Steven Pinker sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, everyone is sort of like um prone to certain biases. Okay, so a lot of the work that the, the, the Pinker can do is 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 interesting, but it has to be filled. Everything is um, I don't know how you can take this back to like, you know, Protagoras's insight. Everything is being filtered through this meat computer, you know. Um, this is what the uh, Man is the measure of all things. Everything is passing through our brains, right? Which means our perspectives matter, our biases matter. The only way we can get past that is sort of these, these overall methods like the scientific method or peer review and mm-hmm. different disciplines where you can kind of like weed things out. The more we've internationalized scholarship, the better as far as I'm concerned, because mm. it helps out. Yeah. We get past a lot of the culture specific biases. This particularly helped history. History in the 19th century was chasing this objective scientific view. Yeah. I can just look at these people. <laughs> look, they're just like that. And you completely leave out their lived realities or how they see the world. Right. So it's just nonsense. Yeah. All right. So metaphysically, just just no explanation, just an answer. Are you a determinist or a free willer? Neither. Ah! Yeah. That, the, clo- the closest you'll get is a kind of like compatibilist framework or a sense that like we... Re- like a we soft need, determinist then, I would we say. We need to see that we are free, but we're really... But are not, we? Not really. No. Not in any kind of absolute sense. Um. But a kind of hard determinism doesn't make sense either. You know, I agree it, with you. I'm a soft determinist because I think I think there's a causal chain or there's there are very real reasons to explain. Like if you have a preference for strawberry ice cream to chocolate ice cream, it's innate to your taste buds that for whatever reason. That's not a rational decision. It's not logic. There's no logic. There, yeah. There's, I, I do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that. So, so I think. Why I, do you like chocolate or vanilla? Why do you like blue or red? Right. I mean, there's, but you epistemologically. Can't, you can't give a Exactly. But epistemologically, it may feel like you're making that choice, right? The, the free will feels right. That doesn't mean that it is. So anyway, we that would be another rabbit hole for it's another day. true in right? everything. You're just firing neurons and whatnot. There's always exactly. causal chains that set things up, you know. Exactly. But, but there are ways in which, like, a hard determinism fails, too. Oh, I agree. Terms. So... So, I yeah, agree. I, I'm going to have to have you back on to do philosophy because this is really, <laughs> I'm enjoying this a little too much. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to shift for um, really quickly for a second. I want to talk about your gun control policy because you had some interesting data points on your website uh, for that reason too. So one of the things you were talking about is that Alabama has twice the rate of gun violence per 100,000 $100, of population to Chicago. And that is something that does not get discussed enough, right? So we're talking about per, per capita gun violence is much higher in the state. And the, and the common, denominator, common denominator is that Alabama has uh, much looser gun control laws, right? So this kind of flies in the Loose face. Gun control plus poverty equals violence. Indeed. Yeah. And suicide too. So talk a little bit about your policies in this area. Yeah, it, it is sort of a complicated one. It, it invites a whole other rabbit hole there because there's a lot of different features to this. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is simply a fact that gun control policies done right are very effective. They can help. The problem is when they're done on state or local levels, they're completely ineffective. Um, right-wingers right. love throwing out the whole Chicago issue, ah, Chicago gun violence, and they leave out the fact that you can drive to Indiana and pick up whatever the hell you want, throw it in your trunk, drive back to Chicago. Hello? Right. You can't actually stop the weapons from getting in there. That's right. Um, 
federal level, you can uh, be a lot more effective there. But realistically, the, the single biggest factor for me, and one of the, the reasons that I, I try to steer the conversation back there, which means, yes, I'm happy to talk about, you know, gun control, bans, whatever we want to talk about there that might help out in the short run. The single biggest issue for me is we need to solve the social problems. Yeah. Right. It's the, the, the fact that America, Americans work more than the Japanese do. We work hundreds of hours more than the French and the Germans do every year, and we get paid less for it, and our debt is exploding. People are, it's driving the suicide rate. The yeah, millennial yeah. suicide rate is insane right now. It, it, it's, it's, it's just through the roof. And it's because people can't get by. I mean, no one wants to be stuck living in mom's basement. You know, it's incredibly depressing. So, if we want to cut down the number of people who are killing themselves, I mean, if you take, uh, okay, if we take handguns away, but we don't solve that problem, they're just going to find another way to kill themselves, right? It doesn't solve the real problem. Same thing with a lot of the despair or um, the nihilism that drives people to shoot things up in public. These things are happening here because we are destroying this country. Ultimately, the reason we have more mass shootings is not just the guns. The guns just make it easy to do. Yeah. It's it's the despair that's driving that. And that's how and that's our fall down to 17th and falling in living standards with massively spiking debt and poverty. Yeah. So to me, they're they're intimately tied issues. Yeah. I don't and we have right. to talk about both, but one of the things I try to do a lot in in politics in general, and I know this is very difficult to do because you mentioned the short attention spans and everything else. I, I try to get people to see at least that issues are, are related. That if we're keep trying to slap a bandit on a hemorrhage, we're still going to bleed to death because you can't solve these things by tacking on small fixes to small issues. You have to take a step back and realize what are the deeper underlying things? What are the systemic factors driving this? What's right. really right. making this bad? Right. I want to um, end with talking about who you're running against. He's running against. He's an incumbent. He's a Republican. Um, his name is Ken Calvert. He's been there since 2013 in, in your district. Before that, he was uh, the rep from 43. Um, we had some gerrymandering going on, but uh, yeah. from 2003 onward. So he's been in office a long time. He's been in office, actually. He was elected in 1992. Oh, even earlier. So where was my, he in office my, in 92? My first, my first election, he was elected. He's been he's been in office my entire adult life. Where was uh, he before Congress? Uh, Congress. He was oh, first elected oh. to Congress in 1992. The district has gone. Has so he's been 40, gerrymandered 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, twice now. Uh -huh. Well, uh, the, the borders just shift every 10 years. Yeah. But he's always held onto the Corona area where he's in. So okay. he's been the Congress critter for Corona for 28 years. He's the longest serving Republican in California, and it makes him quite powerful in California politics uh, mm -hmm. and influential there. But in 28 years, he's never chaired a committee. He deliberately flies below the radar because he's consistently ranked as one of the most corrupt people in Congress. Oh, 100%. Party know that he's corrupt, yeah. so they try to you know, manage his public presence. Okay, so let's talk about the corruption, the quid pro quo. He is bought by the military industrial complex in so many ways. His biggest donators, Lockheed Martin. Um, there was one company I wanted to bring up. It's a private defense company called Sierra Nevada Corporation that doesn't get a lot of attention. They're actually a fairly, fairly large corporation with um, 40 different locations across the country. I think they're, uh, they're centered in Nevada, but they have a presence in Southern California. But... Mm -hmm. 
because he's bought and paid for by the military industrial complex, this contributes to so many things in society, right? It's not just our foreign policy. It's also our militarized police departments, et cetera. So talk a little bit about what your plans are in this area that are different from Ken Calvert's. Well, I guess start with the corruption issue. Uh, until you get the big money out of Congress, uh, nothing's really going to change. We can't really address I mean, There's a reason that Congress usually has like a 7% approval rating, because nothing is going to get done to help ordinary people because everyone is bought and paid for. They should be wearing NASCAR jackets with their owners yeah. on them. Because it's really, it's not us. It's all these different corporations right. and big special interests that control things. And they have an interest in maintaining that paralysis on any kind of big issues so they can continue to undermine everything behind closed doors. And the military industrial complex is particularly pernicious. The way that it has spread jobs all across the country, it's difficult to address anything in spending there. It's it's a massive um, public welfare system for corporations where we just shift tons of resources to it. They produce weapons, you produce too many weapons, that gives someone a reason to want to use them which has a lot to do with our interventionist foreign policy. Yeah. If they're there, you're going to use them. Well, now we've got some surplus. I don't know. Let's just start giving it to the police. Next thing you know, the police are driving tanks and carrying around, you know, assault style rifles. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous because it's not necessary to do the job. I mean, policing in much of the world is either disarmed or mostly disarmed. You know, if, if anything, you've got a sidearm that you never unholster. And here we resist even any kind of regulation that says, okay, you have to tell us when you draw your weapon and point it at somebody. And they're like, no, we don't want to do that. Yeah. Right. I mean, because I mean, we want to be able to point guns at people. Like, why? How is that necessary to do your job on a daily basis? It actually increases the crime rate. Ultimately, the crime is tied to the, the poverty and rising despair we've been talking about here. One of the reasons that most of the rich world has nothing like our violent crime rate is because they have an effective social safety net and lower levels of That's poverty. That's right. The more poverty you create here, the more despair you create, particularly in urban areas here, the more people are going to, you know, if you can be a choice between like working for six bucks an hour, seven bucks an hour here, just barely making it. Um, and I don't know, being a drug dealer or something, that's a hard choice. You yeah. know? <laughs> a lot of people are, are going to make that choice in order to survive and feed their family. So exactly. Um, and we're, we blame them for the situation that we push them into. Yeah, and then exactly. the more you militarize the policing there, the more it creates a sense of an occupying power as opposed to a community, some of the part of the community that's there to help out. I mean, when we had community policing, you had like the local cop that was, you know, he came out of the neighborhood. He already knew, hello, Mrs. Johnson, you know, like, yeah. and they could be trusted because they were from your area. If instead you draw in tons of ex-military people, you give them tons of military-grade weapons, and you plant them in areas as an occupying yeah. force to suppress crime that is artificially elevated by you know criminalizing you know t criminalizing tons of things that don't need to be criminalized in the first place, and then you know massively increasing the poverty, it's just an untenable situation. To get you back to Calvert. None of that can change. He constantly talks about, you know, giving more and more to the police and helping the police out because, I know. because he benefits from the, the current structure there. Same thing with the military. He's voted for every one of our wars. Yeah. 
the closest thing to an anti-war vote he's ever made was uh, he tried to like restrain Obama's involvement in Libya there. That was a partisan issue that had to do with the, the political parties. That's right. Nothing right. to do with the, the military adventurism. He has voted for every single budget increase for the military, constantly pushes that up there. And all that does is it ultimately hurts us because it takes money out of the real economy that could be helping us out. He's basically working. I mean, 98% of his campaign contributions come from corporations. Yeah. They're, it's and not most us. of them are in the military industrial complex. It's, it's remarkable. Military industrial complex and land developers are his, his two big areas, right? You know, you know, the big. So he's actually, uh, I love that he gets to claim to be helping when he draws in some money for a new freeway off ramp or something. And then we ignore the fact that he's driving the creation of tons of bedroom communities in Riverside County with tons of people moving in from LA, Orange, San Diego County and settling in there where it's a little cheaper and massively increasing that traffic. More than a third of the people in my district have to commute out to get to go to work. You know, it's, it's completely unsustainable. And he has been driving that by helping the warehousing industry the, the the housing development industry and then yeah all the, his real owners in the military industrial complex yeah 100 percent. so liam if people want to donate to your campaign where is the best place for them to do that um an easy donation one to remember is that uh for the the url shortener the bitly so bitly slash liam donate um that takes you right to the app blue page but you can also find it at the top of the uh the website so liamomera.org l-i-a-m-o-m-a-r-a.org and then there's a donate right at the top as well as a uh, volunteer link there. And you can okay. sign in. We do tons of events remotely now since we social distancing and all that. But we have a massive phone banking and text banking operation and people all over the place can contribute to that. Excellent. And what's your Twitter handle? Um, the, the Twitter handle is um, uh, Liam O'Mara the fourth. So it has the IV on the end of it. Same with my, my Facebook because stunning lack of originality in my family with names. <laughs> but um uh, it's uh so l-i-a-m-o-m-a-r-a-i-v um and then same with uh, the facebook and then my instagram's a little different it says liam omera 42 excellent okay so i'm gonna have to have you back on to to, to do more philosophy because oh, sure. i'm 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 chomping at the bit here to discuss more of the stuff with you <laughs> yeah i mean if, if you want to talk philosophy um history religion anything like that i mean because again i'm a historian of ideas that's just, that's my bread and butter i love this stuff okay but Liam, that, that is that advice. is philosophy so like rarely can i have these conversations with people like i had literally just so you know i had like 10 more questions about policy pertaining to but i went down the rabbit hole but you know what people are gonna love that a hell of a lot more than the basic green new deal stuff 